Our scripture reading today has been mentioned as Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the very word of God. Well, it is a great pleasure for me to be with you today. Um, let see if there's a place for this. And I, um, I know it's January 9th, but Happy New Year. Now, you're, we're probably done with saying that for the most part, but I come from the East, and I've not met most of you except for Emily and Pastor before, so this is my first time with you at the beginning of a new year, and we are at the beginning of a new year. And that's the traditional greeting, Happy New Year. I think what, as believers we want to say, may it be a blessed new year where we experience a measure of well-being in every facet of life, what we call shalom, we'll return to that, and where we help others to experience a measure of that shalom, where we are the channels of it. Because, we're, as, we, because as we sang, because we're centered on Jesus and we know who we are and we know why he has left us here in our every day. And so I've titled our talk this morning, Partners with God, a vision for our every day, which will take us from here where we are. We're going to concentrate a little bit just where we all are here in our every day, but it will take us to the ends of the earth. And I appreciate this opportunity to kick off, so to speak, your Global Focus Month, because what we're going to be talking about today is the foundation for what we, when we talk about what God is doing in the world and our part in it. And it involves every single one of us and not a select few. So very simply, our focus is this. What vision do we have for who we are and what we do every day? If I were to ask you that question, what vision do you have? How do our everyday occupations connect with God's purposes in the world? It's sort of like the questions of life. Who am I and why am I here? And not just why am I here in general, but why am I here right wherever it is specifically that God has placed me, in my family, in my activities, in my job, in my neighborhood, wherever it may be. Now, if I were to ask you that question, I know most of us would know a good Bible answer. Who am I? Why am I here? We are children of God, adopted by him, loved by him, created to glorify God, to follow Jesus, to love God, and to love our neighbors to the ends of the earth. All wonderfully true. And very general that every Christian should be able to answer. And in that generality, I believe we miss the radical nature of who we are and what God has called us to in redeeming us. 
And it's nothing less that we are partners with God in his work of restoring all things through our daily work, whatever it may be. Now, in my experience, myself included, I believe most people in our churches have not envisioned themselves as a partner with God in his work of restoring all things through what we do every day. Getting up Monday morning saying, God, what is our work today? What is broken that you are restoring? But what if we did? What if God's people who have experienced his shalom through Christ would bring that influence to bear where we live and work intentionally seeking what God is doing, his kingdom, as we have already spoken about, radically loving people in whatever space we enter? What if we envisioned ourselves on Monday morning, not just on Sundays, on Monday morning as partners with God, as that being an integral part of our identity as children of God. What if we were to wake up Monday morning with a prayer like this? God, I'm going to my ministry where you have called me to work with creativity, integrity, excellence, to display you to others for their good and to make disciples. I'm going to work. Show me what that looks like and in whom you want me to invest. I do not believe this has been the normal posture for believers for the simple reason that there is a centuries old. And by centuries old, I mean it goes back to the beginning, even when Christ came in before, even to the Greek philosophers, whatever. But, but particularly back to the Edict of Milan, that granted the tolerance of Christianity in all of the, in all of the Roman Empire, it goes back to a centuries-old sacred-secular divide that has marginalized most people into thinking that ministry is something you do in church, led by professional ministers who serve the Lord full-time and involve others in volunteer ministries who serve the Lord in those two to four hours a week that they may give to the church. And the remainder of the time that we have is our work. Our work, as good or as good, enjoyable or not that it may be. Consequently, most often we do not think of our everyday work as ministry, let alone our primary calling, our primary ministry to which God has called us. So the sacred-secular divide could be defined in this way. It's, see if you can identify it with this a little bit. It's the common belief that some parts of life, typically religious activities, such as we're doing this morning, such as prayer, worship services, and church work, are sacred and more important in God's eyes. And everything else that makes up ordinary life, school, let's begin with that where we spend the better part of 20 years, school, work, family duties like changing diapers and taking kids to sports and all those kinds of things and and cooking and cleaning, music, the arts, politics, hobbies, they're all secular and somehow of less interest to God. 
And the insidiousness of this is, we know that's not true. But it's another thing to live that out where all of life is sacred. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian of the latter part of the 19th century, earlier of the 20th century, and also one of the prime ministers of the Netherlands, famously said these words, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, if you follow the series, The Crown, has anybody here followed that series, The Crown? Okay. Well, or even understand even the least bit about being a part of a royal family, you understand that a major theme throughout is the reality that the members of the royal family do not really have a life of their own. So in the last episode, we have Princess Di who's getting, who wants to leave the royal family. Have we heard that recently? She wants to leave the royal family, and we have Prince Philip going into her chambers and in an emotional conversation saying this to her. Everyone in this system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider apart from the one person, the only person that matters. She's the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty. Your problem, if I may say, is you seem to be confused about who that person is, referring to Queen Elizabeth. Now, aside from the fact that we are not irrelevant, anything but that, we are lost, lonely outsiders apart from the one person, the only person that matters. He's the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty and love. And our problem sometimes, as the worship leader just mentioned, our problem sometimes is we seem to be confused about who that person is. And that's our starting point, my friends. We exist for the crown. We exist for the crown. For the believer, there is no sacred secular divide. All belongs to him. It is all sacred. It is all lived before him and offered to him in worship. Martin Luther used to say that God smiles when a man changes a diaper. (laughs) Shows you that even back then, men didn't often do that. The rest of our time, we want to look at God's perspective on our everyday activity what I call our work. Now, we begin with a simple definition of work. Work is any activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a result. And there are my grandchildren up there because work encompasses, it definitely encompasses employment, and that's what we normally think of often when we use that term work. But we know marriage is work. We know grandparenting can be delightful work, and it is. We know parenting is often not so delightful work. Can be, oftentimes, oftentimes isn't. It goes beyond that. School is work. You don't get paid for it. 
but it's but it's 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 connected in this retirement. There's work. There's activity in retirement. It, that's why we call it whole life discipleship, all of life. And if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of our work? Well, that familiar verse in First Corinthians ten thirty one comes to mind. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's another very well known phrase that we use all the time, but oftentimes we don't unpack that. What do we mean, do all to the glory of God? Let, let me suggest that means that our work is to be a reflection of God first, a reflection of him, of his character, of who he is, of his ways, and the means of his work in the world. God is at work, and amazingly, we are the means of it. There's no plan B. No plan B. When we, when, we believe, when we talk about all the beautiful things God does for us and all and how he meets our needs and how he comes to us and how he heals and how he does all this, my friends, he normally does not zap out of heaven and do those things. It is through every single one of us in our every day. So that brings us to the beginning where this all starts and what we call the original Great Commission. We're familiar with the Great Commission statements of the Gospels. The original Great Commission we find in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to read parts of these verses again that were read. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Genesis 1 records the activity of God, the works of God in bringing or in creating everything, bringing order out of chaos in, in a orderly fashion, creating everything that's going on in the world, everything that he wanted to put into the universe with the crown of creation being humanity, unlike everything else he had created, humanity made a little lower than God. And what was God's intention in all of this? What was God's intention? Psalm 72, 19 says, May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's his intention. His intention was to fill the earth with his glory, a reflection of who he is in the world. And the way he wanted to do that was through a humanity created a little like himself. A flourishing humanity displaying who he was in the whole world to the ends of the earth, if you like. That's why we call this the original Great Commission. He told them to fill humanity in relationship with him to fill the earth. And my friends, when Jesus gave us the Great Commission to make disciples in all nations and all, all peoples and, and to preach the word to the ends of the earth. He was not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. He was going back to the original desire of God in creating humanity to glorify himself throughout the whole world through a flourishing humanity made a little like him. That begs the question, so he created us for relationship and the reflection of his glory. That begs the question, what do we reflect about God? Enormous question. Spend the rest of the year on that. Enormous question. 
We're going to sum it up in three ways. We reflect his love. God is an eternal community of three and a perfect love relationship, the model for God's people, for humanity. It's Jesus' desire of this high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where he prays four times that we would be one like the Father, like the Father and the Son. And it's no accident that all humanity longs to belong. Our deepest joys and memories are associated with relationships of some sort, just as our deepest hurts and wounds come from the failure of those relationships. Everyone, knowing God or not, desires to give and receive love because we are relational to the core, made a little like God. And that's why radical love is our greatest apologetic. Jesus said that, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the whole world will know that the Father sent the Son by our oneness. And that love has been poured in, and and he can expect that of us because that love has been poured in us through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Poured to overflowing, Romans 5 says. But somehow, my friends, that prayer has not been answered yet. And we are not one. We are, we do not manifest the oneness that we are, I should say. But we reflect that love of God more than anything else. And that's a key into the world knowing that God sent Jesus. Secondly, we we reflect his justice. God is the standard for all that is right and good. And it encompasses rescue whether that's trafficking or an abusive relationship or some bullying going on at work or school. It encompasses equity and fairness where everybody is treated the same no matter their ethnicity, the color of their skin, whatever. And we know that can be a rarity. And it ultimately encompasses restoration, the reversal of all injustice and sin. All humanity, whether knowing God or not, recoils at injustice. All humanity. Desiring a just world, however they may define it, because we are made in the image of God. And it's the reason why reflecting God's justice is equally important as reflecting his sacrificial love, which we don't often emphasize. And not to speak of living out. And Micah 6, 8 famously brings this all together where it says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy, kessed, loving kindness, loyalty, loyal love, and to walk humbly with your God. And then we reflect his works. Everyone here is wired differently a little like God, reflecting him through the abilities, the talents, the vocations that we all have, no matter what they are. And through them, God accomplishes his work in the world of all different sorts. So for instance, how did you get your breakfast this morning? Oh, good. Now, how did you get that? Well, there's the store where the, you bought the ingredients. There's the clerk at the store who took care of your order. There's, there's the driver who brought the goods to the store. There's the farmer who raised them, but there's the banker who financed the farmer. 
we could go on and on and on. It required the whole economic system that is the answer to the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. God answers that prayer through the whole economic system, through the vocations of a whole slew of people. And there's kingdom language here in these first verses of Genesis. There's kingdom language. It's the first mention in the Bible of subdue and rule over all. That's kingdom talk. Some of your translations says have dominion. Right from the very beginning, we have kingdom talk. God rules, and we know that, always has, always will. But we just celebrated, my friends, the birth of the king. And Jesus spoke of a kingdom arriving. And he spoke of the kingdom coming in his, in his person. And the kingdom was inaugurated, and the apostles were now proclaiming the kingdom. And we have entered that kingdom if we know Jesus. We have been transferred from the domain, from the authority of darkness, into the kingdom of his dear son. And that's our identity according to Genesis 1 and why God created to us. We are what we could call vice regents of the king of creation. A vice regent is someone who rules on behalf of another. The scripture uses the term ambassadors. It uses the term co-laborers. But the Genesis idea right here, when he tells humanity in relationship with him, subdue and rule over all. We were created to rule. We exist for the crown from the very beginning. So we are like him in his image. That's our dignity. No higher dignity can be bestowed upon us. And our world is desperate for knowing that. Because when you throw God out of the picture, you lose your dignity. And that's something, whether people like who Christians are or like whatever they may conceive of Christians to be. My friends, there's a lot of common ground in these verses. That's the basis for us reaching out to people. People are crying out for dignity. And the rising rate of people harming themselves and doing away with themselves is all about that, reaching a point of desperation because they do not know who they are or why they are here. That's our dignity. And we were created to rule. That's our purpose. We were created to be vice regents of the king of creation, carrying out his kingdom work and all the world through our work, wherever we live and work. That's who we are. That's who we are. Now, these verses are called the cultural mandate. Have we all heard of that? Good. Very few churches know that. It's called the cultural mandate for good reason. Wherever we go, we create and influence culture, whether we are intentional about it or not, because culture happens through the ongoing words, actions, and attitudes of people in a group setting. So your family has a culture. All the different families here have different cultures. This church has its culture that you're seeking to establish in an intentional way. 
And your workplace, your daily workplace from Monday to Saturday, Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, has its own culture. So Carmen Gallo, who's a consultant and author for the likes of Bill Gates and people like him, said this very simply, whether we plan it or not, culture will happen. Why not create the culture we want? So I know there's a Trader Joe's around here. You may not, I don't know how many of those, but normally people like to go there. Why? Because Trader Joe's is known for its employees being friendly and very helpful no matter what you do. And, uh, and people are, and they're often asked, why are Trader Joe's employees so friendly? And as someone responded to that, we want to give customers an experience you can't get elsewhere. And what we want to understand by this is that culture of the store is not by accident. The leaders treat their employees well. The employees don't want to leave. That's why it's hard to get a job there. Not only for what they're paid, but how they're treated. And if the employees are happy and treated well, guess what they're going to do with the people they serve? That's right. It's not by accident. Culture is not by accident. Wherever we are, and wherever we are leaders, leaders of our family, leaders of our job, leaders of our church, we are architects of culture. And it begs the question, how aware are we of what we are creating? And I'll leave you some questions at the end of of the message with that. But that's the first question. How aware are we of what what we are creating? And secondly, what are we creating? in the culture of our families, in the culture of our church, in the culture where we work. Now, when God gave this mandate to steward creation on his behalf, what characterized the culture of work, relationships, and environment in Genesis 1? What characterized Genesis 1? And we could sum that up by one word, shalom. Well-being flourishing in every sense with God, one another, and the culture they created. It's what we were created for, and it's the way things should be. We were not created for the world as it is. So as God's vice regents, humanity was the means of God's work to develop a world of shalom where humanity would flourish and glorify him. So picture this. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. And God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. That's who we are. It's where we work. And in Genesis 2, we have the first workplace, the garden. First workplace on mission. Where Adam is told is placed in the garden and told to cultivate and keep it. 
Now, work starts in the garden that God worked to create. Work, contrary to sometimes public opinion, work is not an evil add-on coming from the fall into sin. On the contrary, it's a reflection of a working God built into our DNA. And people often point out, you may have heard that the word for cultivate is the word for work is also the word for worship, avodah. And it's a word that brings together work on one hand and worship on the other in a way that English cannot do. And it brings together and highlights the fact that our work is offered to God in worship. It's for Him. Right from the very beginning, the Word tells us that. It's we imitate God in our work. And whether that's blue-collar work, white-collar work, whatever kind of work it is, we imitate God. And it speaks of the dignity of work all by itself without it being a platform in which we can talk about Jesus, which it may be, Obviously, we live out our faith at work. We want to consider what that's going to look like. But work in and of itself has a dignity and value, no matter what kind it is, because it's an imitation of God. And that's why Martin Luther King, back in the day of the civil rights movement of the 60s, said this. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all hosts of heaven and earth pause to say, here lives a great sweeper who did his job well. And I would add, and reflected God well, bringing order and cleanliness to society. And why did he say that? Because back in the day, most many of the African Americans could not rise above that kind of job because of the color of their skin. And he wanted to emphasize good theology. That work has dignity. And that's an extremely important reality when we talk about global themes. Because most of the world cannot work in their giftedness. We talk about going to school. What do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do for a living? Obviously, I want to do something that's fulfilling, that pays well, that provides me a very comfortable way of living. My friends, most of the world cannot do that. That is a luxury. That is a blessing from God. And it's important to recognize that our well-being does not depend on that. Because there may be some people here who wish they didn't have to do what they're doing. There may be some people here who don't enjoy their job or their everyday work. But we begin with the meaning of it. So that's why that is so important. What does that say to us about our garden, where we live and work, wherever that may be? Our daily work is our sacred venue to love God and others. It is our place where we create, shape, and influence culture to reflect his love, justice, and beauty, bringing flourishing to our world. It is our venue for making disciples, investing in people. Now, we know sin messed all that up. 
But just for a moment, imagine if Genesis 1 fulfilled and Genesis 3 did not happen. What would we have? We would have a whole world that reflects God's glory in which humanity flourishes, a whole world that reflects God's love and justice, a whole world of shalom. And what's important here is that God has not rescinded that mandate. He has not canceled that mandate. God's intent is that his glory be displayed through a flourishing humanity throughout the whole world. And that's our vision for who we are in our everyday. We are vice regents, his partners, his ambassadors, his agents until he comes. But Genesis 3 happens and sin enters and shalom has been vandalized and culture reflects our corruption and the consequences of the fall. And this spiritual battle is initiated. And, we, and we're in battle with Satan. We're in battle with our flesh, with the world, and with nature. And, and we, we know with the issues of sexuality, all that starts in Genesis 3. Work can be hard, disappointed, disappointing, characterized by self-interest and conflict. We are still made in the image of God, but we are macchiato. And that's a good Italian word that doesn't just belong in the coffee shop. (laughs) Macchiato means stained. The image of God is in us, but it is stained. But that still means, my friends, that still means there's an essential dignity that we treat others with. That is the basis that we treat others with, no matter who they are, no matter what they do, no matter what the color of their skin is, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what social status they are, no matter whatever. It is the basis for the equality of everyone in God's eyes. At the entrance of sin means our world is broken, people are exploited, and life does not work as God intended. And exponentially so, where the gospel has had little or no influence. But God hasn't canceled his Genesis mandate, so much so that he sent Jesus. And Jesus enters to reverse the fall and restore all things broken. Jesus enters to bless the world. And right from the very beginning of Genesis 3, we find the promise. But I want to read something from Colossians 1 that sums it all up from us. In Colossians 1, 20 to 22, we read in verse 19, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus coming, cross and resurrection are not just about getting people to heaven as important as that is. The theology that many of us learned was heaven-centered rather than heaven and earth-centered, in which Jesus' kingdom has already broken in through the gospel, and we all here are his partners, his vice-regents, beginning that reversal and restoration, beginning that kingdom work. And Colossians says that Jesus' work was sufficient to reconcile all things by the blood of the cross, providing for the restoration of the entire universe, the new heavens and the new earth, things that we read about in the Old Testament prophets, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, things that we read about in Revelation, 
but things which begin now prior to the consummation. And it begins now. And that affects the way and the reason and the purpose for which we work and where we are in our everyday. It is so much more than paying the bills and providing for us, which which is a great part of what it is a part of. It is so much more than that. It is the place where we rule. And so we just came out of the Christmas season, and I don't know if you sang ever sang Joy to the World. There's a verse in there that we don't often sing, that sometimes the modern renditions don't have us sing, but there's a verse in there that says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And my friends, that's why we're here. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So someone said, pull up some thorns. Where are you pulling up some thorns? That's good. So we are restored image bearers, mandated to fill the earth and rule over all under King Jesus. And in his kingdom, the great reversal begins. And Jesus reverses guilt with forgiveness, shame with honor, broken relationships with reconciliation, injustice with justice, oppression with deliverance, poverty with economic well-being, sickness with healing. It only begins here. We're not bringing in utopia. Looking at the world, we know there is much, much brokenness. And that's why I refer to these things as an antipasto. Now, an antipasto does not mean before the pasta. It means before the meal. We, be, we are an antipasto awaiting the banquet of when Jesus comes. We give people an appetizer of the coming kingdom through our everyday work and relationships. The kingdom has already arrived, but it's not yet. That theology is very, very important for what we do and who we are. And in the meantime, Jesus saves us not only from sin and restore and setting us on a journey to heaven, he saves us to his original purpose, the cultural mandate, restoring our identity as vice regents of the king of creation, partners with God in his work of reconciling all things which ultimately affects our cultures. And as God's people live out the gospel, they're changed, the people they bless are, and culture cannot help but be affected. Whether that's small levels of your own life changed by Jesus... Or on a large level, sometimes things happen, can happen on a global level, as depicted in the movie Amazing Grace, if you've seen that. William Wilberforce was the British politician largely responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in all of the British Empire. He almost missed the opportunity thinking spiritual affairs were, are more important than secular affairs. And then there's this scene in the movie where they're at the kitchen table where someone says to them, we understand that you are having problems choosing whether to do the work of God or that of a political activist. We humbly suggest that you can do both. 
And John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, persuaded him, it's hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of the nation. And through his vision, his faith in Christ, his perseverance, his oratorical skills that God gave him, he finally saw the abolition of slavery in the British Empire some 50 years after he began, while lying on his deathbed. And three days after it was signed, he died. Vice regents who give people a taste of future flourishing and shalom, blessing them through how we work and the way we love. And I conclude with the shocking illustration of Israel in Jeremiah, famous verses in Jeremiah 29, in which the people of God, Israel, because of their disobedience, were being sent to Babylon. They were obedience for them meant surrender to Babylonians who were God's instruments of his discipline. Go to Babylon, build houses, plant vineyards, raise families, and last and fill the earth. Basically, he was telling them there. And last but not least, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And don't miss the scandal of that command to them. They were to seek the holistic well-being of their captors who invaded their land, ravished and massacred their families and friends, and then brought them into captivity. They leave the safety comfort of their community in Israel, sent into the world, so to speak, to seek the shalom of the unbelieving community around them. And it's no different than if the Taliban were to come and overrun America, and then God tells us, now go Love on them. So also, God sends us into the workplaces of the world to seek their shalom in the cultures where we live and work, seeking the kingdom of God. And this has profound implications for God's global work and missions. God's global disciple-making work was never meant to be the domain of a select few of professional religious workers, what you and I understand as missionaries. Never meant that way. All humanity in relationship with God, Genesis 1, was told to fill the earth. And the approximately 3 billion unreached peoples show how far we are from that. And it will not be accomplished by just sending what you and I understand as professional religious workers, missionaries. It will take the whole body of Christ in all of their professions, stewarding them all to the ends of the earth. That's who we are. And one reason I think it's that way is because we have often not been taught that we are all partners with God in restoring all things to our daily vocations. But that's who we are. I leave you with five questions. Questions for intentional culture making and ruling. One, what is good that we can promote, celebrate, and protect? Look at your family, your business, your workplace, your home, Where is God working? What do you want to promote, celebrate, and protect? Two, what is missing that we can contribute? Three, what is evil that you can resist or stop? Much discernment of the Spirit is needed in that. Here and also around the world where people live in corrupt cultures, all cultures are have the corruption in them.
But that's where the justice of God comes in. And that's where, where we are to somehow live that out. And that's going to mean resisting or stopping those things that are evil, as William Wilberforce did when he worked for the abolition of the slave trade in the whole of the British Empire. The evil of that. Not only, but the evil. He, he also argued for the reformation of matters. The evil of child labor and all those other things. He worked against that. Four, what is broken that we can restore? I like this word from Bono, being a musician myself. Uh, he said, I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope when the day is done, I've been able to tear a little corner off of the darkness. Can we go to work tomorrow morning and say, God, what does it look like for me to tear a little corner off of the darkness? And five, who might you be able to bless at your work? Who might you be able to invest in at your work in your neighborhood? The book of Revelation shows me that the destiny of the earth is to be fully inhabited by heaven. My ultimate hope is not to be whisked away to a paradise in the clouds, but to see the world made new for heaven and earth to become one. As a follower of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, I am a forerunner, a citizen of this future hope here and now. I carry the shalom of God into a troubled world that desperately needs it. That's our vision of who we are and what we do in our everyday. God's vice regents giving a taste of shalom through how we work and the way we love in all of our vocations to the ends of the earth. Will you pray with me?